Well, good morning. Happy New Year. John really wanted you to stand up so you wouldn't fall asleep. Well, we're going to be back in uh, 1 Samuel this morning. Our passage this morning is going to be all of chapter 5 and half of chapter 6. And it's a section that it could be uh, titled, How Not to Respond to God. Uh, it's a section that I think is often misunderstood. Uh, but you and I, we're going to think clearly and we're going to find that it's a, a passage of scripture that will benefit us greatly. Before we begin to read through the next chapter and a half, I, I want us to quickly remember the context because what we read here won't make much sense unless we acknowledge first what has already taken place. I'd actually say that you can't fully understand this passage without also taking into account what happens after these things. We'll, we'll address that issue when we come to it. Uh, for now, let us remember what has already taken place. If you remember, the book of Samuel uh, picks up in the history of the nation of Israel um, at a point in history when uh, God's people are living not as a nation, but rather as a, a group of tribes who are living in the land that God promised to give to them. But they are not really living as God's people in the sense that they are not living in the way that God wanted them to live. Uh, as is recorded in the book of Judges, the time period uh, right before where Samuel picks up, uh, the way that they were living was this. Each person was doing what was right in their own eyes. Each person was doing what is right in their own eyes. Or as we would put it today, they were just following their heart. Um, the book of Judges is a testimony to the fact that that's a bad plan of action. Um, it, it ends for them being a downward spiral, uh, falling into worse and worse sin and depravity. If you remember the, the priests who were led by Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, all of whom are now dead, uh, not, I don't mean like now today they're dead, of course that, but even at the point where we are picking up, they have, they have died. And, and many of the people as well have, have given up uh, obeying and worshiping God. And they are living as they see fit. Eli and his sons, they had defiled the worship of God. Remember that? They're at Shiloh, at the tabernacle, they were fattening themselves uh, by stealing the, the gifts that people were bringing, their offerings to God, and they were preying upon the vulnerable women who were serving there at the tabernacle. And then Israel's army goes out to battle against the Philistines, and they suffer a terrible defeat at the hands of the Philistines. And... In response to that, without stopping to ask God, wow, this is not how we thought it was going to go. Usually you go out and fight for us. Um, without stopping to ask God, what happened? Why did you not fight for us? And without asking God, hey, is there something different that we should be doing? They just simply come back and make the decision that, uh, that what will solve their problem is by getting the box, the golden box, the, the Ark of the Covenant of God. And that golden box over which 
God's presence sometimes appeared there in the tabernacle at Shiloh. They decided that they will go and they will get the ark and they will take it into battle with them because they are viewing the ark of God as if it were some sort of oversized rabbit's foot. Uh, Just a giant good luck charm that, that if they brought it with them, it would guarantee the victory. That isn't how it works, is it? That's not how it worked for them. They suffered an even more severe slaughter at the hands of the Philistines. In the end, the the box itself was captured by the Philistines. Hophni and Phinehas, the two young priests, were killed in the battle. And Eli, the old high priest, died. He dropped dead upon hearing the news of all that had taken place. And it's that that encouraging moment that we pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 5 as the narrative begins to follow the ark of God, not amongst the people of Israel, but as it travels to the lands of the Philistines having been captured in battle. So let's do this. Grab your Bible, open to 1 Samuel chapter 5, and I invite you to stand with me. I'll read our passage. I encourage you to follow along. I'll begin in chapter 5, verse 1, and I'll read halfway through chapter 6. 1 Samuel chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, it says, After the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod, brought it into the temple of Dagon, and placed it next to his statue. When the people of Ashdod got up early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen with his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and returned him to his place. But when they got up early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen with his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. This time Dagon's head and both his hands were broken off and lying on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso remained. That is why still today the priests of Dagon and everyone who enters the temple of Dagon in Ashdod do not step on Dagon's threshold. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod. He terrified the people of Ashdod and its territory and afflicted them with tumors. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of Israel's God must not stay here with us because his hand is strongly against us and our God, Dagon. So they called all the Philistine rulers together and asked, What should we do with the ark of Israel's God? The Ark of Israel's God should be moved to Gath, they replied. So they moved the Ark of Israel's God. After they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against the city of Gath, causing a great panic. He afflicted the people of the city from youngest to the oldest with an outbreak of tumors. The people of Gath then sent the Ark of God to Ekron. But when he got there, the Ekronites cried out, they've moved the Ark of Israel's God to us to kill us and our people. The Ekronites called all the Philistine rulers together and they said, send the Ark of Israel's God away. Let it return to its place so it won't kill us and our people. For the fear of death pervaded the city. God's hand was oppressing them. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors, and the outcry of the city 
went up to heaven. Chapter 6. When the ark of the Lord had been in Philistine territory for seven months, the Philistines summoned the priests and the diviners and pleaded, what should we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we can send it back to its place. They replied, if you send the ark of Israel's God away, do not send it without an offering. Send back a guilt offering to him and you will be healed. Then the reason his hand hasn't been removed from you will be revealed. They asked, what guilt offering should we send back to him? And they answered, five gold tumors and five gold mice, corresponding to the number of Philistine rulers, since there was one plague for both you and your rulers. Make images of your tumors and of your mice that are destroying the land. Give glory to Israel's God, and perhaps he will stop oppressing you, your gods, and your land. Why harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened theirs when he afflicted them? Didn't they send Israel away and Israel left? Now then, prepare one new cart and two milk cows that have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, but take their calves away and pin them up. Take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put the gold objects that you are sending to him as a guilt offering in a box beside the ark. Send it off and let it go its way. Then watch. If it goes up the road to its homeland towards Beth Shemesh, it is the Lord who has made this terrible trouble for us. However, if it doesn't, we will know that it was not his hand that punished us. It was just something that had happened to us by chance. The men did this. They took two milk cows, hitched them to the cart, and confined their calves in the pen. Then they put the ark of the Lord on the cart, along with the box containing the gold mice and the images of their tumors. The cows went straight up the road to Beth Shemesh, they stayed on that one highway, lowing as they went. They never strayed to the right or to the left. The Philistine rulers were walking behind them to the territory of Beth Shemesh. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would speak to us. God, help us to, uh, to take what we see in your dealings with these people so long ago and their response to you. God, help us to learn from it. God, help us to rightly understand the dynamics. And Lord, to rightly understand what it is that you desire from us as we respond to you. God, have your hand on us and on this time. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Stop and think for, for just a second about what it is that we've just read. You know, normally when you, you open up the Bible, you, you open up to the Old Testament, what you read about is God dealing with his people Israel. But here, we're given a glimpse into God's dealings, not with Israel, but with Israel's enemy, the Philistines. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that God would reach out to them, that he would care about them. Even those who were making themselves to be enemies of God's people. After all, we know from, from the New Testament, from 2 Peter 3.9, that God cares about all 
people, that there are no exceptions. It's there that Peter writes that God is patient, not wanting any to perish. Now that any, that's a pretty broad term, isn't it? That there is no one that God desires to see them perish, but rather he wants all people to come to repentance. And so uh, what we see here clearly is that God cares even about the Philistines. Even the Philistines who had just attacked God's people, who had just captured and were desecrating God's Ark of the Covenant, and those who had just destroyed the tabernacle there at Shiloh, God cares about them. And so you know what we can walk away from that with is knowing Knowing this, no matter who you are, and no matter what it is that you have done, God cares about you. And he desires to turn your heart to himself. Well, the Philistines, they didn't understand that. They were just thinking about the fact that they had won the battle. They had won. And they had defeated not only Israel, but in their eyes, Their God, Dagon, had defeated the God of Israel. And that's why we read in verse 1 of chapter 5 that the Philistines took that ark, that box of God that they had captured, and they took it to their city, the city of Ashdod, and they put it in the temple of their God, Dagon. And they assumed that since they'd won the battle, they defeated Israel. It must have been because their God, Dagon, was superior to, was stronger than the God of the Israelites. And so they took the ark into Dagon's temple and they set it there as a tribute to Dagon's superiority. But then we read verse 3. When they got up early the next morning, there was their God, Dagon, fallen with his face to the ground, laying there as if he were bowing down before the ark of the Lord. So they picked up their God. They dusted him off and they put him back in his place. Uh, But verse four, when they got up early the next morning, There again was Dagon fallen with his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. But this time it was worse. This time Dagon's head and both of his hands were broken off and were lying there upon the threshold. The only thing left intact was his torso. A couple of interesting things for us to think through here. Let's start with this. The Philistines were operating under the assumption their philosophy of God was this, that since they won the battle, clearly their God was greater than Israel's God. Therefore, they worshipped their God, Dagon. Yet, do you notice the inconsistency? They don't hold to that same rule of thought uh, when the next two consecutive nights, their God Dagon takes a nap on the floor in front of the Ark of God. It falls prostrate before the Ark of God. The second time, losing its head and its hands. They don't in that moment decide, 
Well, clearly our God is no longer superior, but now is inferior. And so they, you know, you don't see them turning away from Dagon and and seeking instead to worship the God of the Ark of Israel. They they don't immediately admit God's obvious superiority. They, They don't send for a Levite to find out how it is that they should begin worshiping the Israelite God. Instead, they prop their God back up. They literally pick him up off the floor and set him up again. I bet they even superglued his head and his hands back to his body. And the question is, why would they do that? Oh, why would they not just abandon Dagon and begin to worship a God who is clearly superior? Well, I think the answer is, is this. They're just like idol worshipers in all other times and in all other places. They were not really worshiping Dagon. They were merely seeking to manipulate him. You see, idol worship isn't really worship. It's a system by which we manipulate that which we think has power in order to try to get what we want for ourselves. I don't think they really cared whether Dagon was the true God. They just wanted a way to manipulate the powers to let them do whatever it was they wanted and live however it is that they pleased and get whatever it is that they wanted. And that, friends, is false worship. Whether you are worshiping Dagon or you are worshiping the God who is. If your goal is to manipulate God simply to get what you want rather than to submit yourself to him and to seek what he desires, that's false worship. Well, even when Dagon is repeatedly knocked down, they just continue to prop him back up and they continue to follow their, their false religious ways. They had an opportunity there. See it clearly. God had sent them a message. They had opportunity to turn away from Dagon and to instead begin to follow God. But what do they do? How do they respond to God in that moment? Rather than turning to him and seeking him, they reinforce their idolatrous worship. They just add tradition upon ritual. And all that they get out of this whole adventure is a new tradition about not stepping on the threshold when you're walking into the temple of Dagon. You and I, in the midst of looking at this, I think one of the things that we need to keep clear as well is that this story is not about the box being more powerful than the statue. It isn't about the power of the box, but rather it's about God being real and us needing to respond to him. Well, the Philistines don't get that. They choose to ignore God's very clear message to them 
but God is not discouraged by a little bit of ignorance. Aren't you glad for that? <laughs> I would even say he's not discouraged by a whole lot of ignorance. God continues to speak to them. And because they won't listen, this time he speaks a little louder. It was C.S. Lewis who said that God whispers to us in our pleasures. Isn't that true? There's so many good things in life that, that speak to us about the glory of God, his goodness to us, the, the stars in the night sky, uh, the wonder of holding a baby in your arms. So many things that God whispers to us in our pleasures. And he speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Oh, I think that's true. Isn't it true for you? It's true for me. There have been times I've been successful in ignoring God until he raises his voice. Well, the Philistines aren't listening. They're not listening. And so God raises his voice. That's what this is about here. Verse 6, the Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod. He terrified them. He terrified the people of Ashdod and its territory and afflicted them with tumors. Now, there are all sorts of theories about what these tumors were, were caused by. Yeah, older traditions uh, refer to these as being hemorrhoids. That's horrific enough. Um, <laughs> modern commentators uh, lean, on, lean towards them being a symptom of bubonic plague. Okay, that's fairly awful. Um, but I would contend that focusing on any potential cause of the tumors is actually leading us off track. Look simply at what the text says. The Lord's hand was heavy on them. In other words, God did this. It wasn't hemorrhoids. It wasn't bubonic plague. It was God. It wasn't just some random and naturally caused thing but it was something that God did, and he did it on purpose, and he did it for a purpose. You see, understand this. God isn't just being mean because he's bored. God is seeking to get the Philistines' attention. He's seeking to show them the futility and the dead end of their faulty worship. Because he wants them to come into relationship with himself so that they might experience true freedom. Now, maybe you think, well, that was kind of a vague way to send that message. And maybe you're concerned that it was too difficult for the Philistines to discern what it was that God was communicating. Well, I get that, but it seems from the text that they did clearly understand. I mean, look at what it says. Look at verse 7. The people of Ashdod saw what was happening. They understood. They knew that it was God's hand strongly against them. And why? And against their God. Instead of being confused about this whole thing, they see very clearly this Situation, this suffering we are experiencing is a result of God rebuking us and rebuking us for our idolatrous worship. 
but rather than submitting themselves to the one true God, instead of seeking out what it was that, that he wanted from them and for them, they sought only to escape him, to avoid his intervention into their lives. Verse 8, so they called all the Philistine rulers together. What was their goal? What should we do with this thing? What should we do with the ark of Israel's God? How can we get rid of this? And they are thrilled when someone suggests sending it to another city. But things don't go well for that city when it arrives there. Verse 9, and they had moved it and the Lord's hand was then against the city of Gath. They too suffer tumors and great fear. And so verse 10, the, the people of Gath then send a nice present to the people of Ekron. But by then the people of Ekron have already heard about what happened in Gath and Ashdod and they want nothing to do with this thing. And so a meeting is called, verse 11, and it is decided that they, what they need to do is to send the ark away, get it out of Philistine territory. In fact, let's return it to its place. Let's send it back to the people we took it from. And that's what they said about doing in chapter 6. And so in chapter 6, we see that after seven months of trouble, the Philistines summoned, and I think it's clear and, and, and vital that we notice here, they summoned their local experts, their own priests and diviners. They are not getting advice on this from the Levites, from the priests, but from their own pagan worship leaders who counseled them in verse 3 to send the ark away with a guilt offering making a promise that if they did that, that they would be healed and everything would be good again. These guys had no clue. They had no idea what they were saying and no validity to, to being able to make a promise that, that God would heal them and that everything would be good. By the way, um, they are just following pagan practices here. They aren't doing the things that scripture tells us to do. Everything that they counseled uh, the Philistines to do uh, was things that the law forbade. I mean, let's look at verse five. Make images of tumors and of mice. Images. Images. Are God's people supposed to be making images? Uh, just go back to Exodus 20, to the Ten Commandments. No images. Uh, don't make images, God says. Uh, these guys say, hey, yeah, the tumors, make some images of the tumors and of the mice. And then in verse 8, put the ark on a cart. And now this may seem like a minor detail to many, but it got it very clearly set up a process for moving the ark and it did not include carts. Not because they didn't have them. They had lots of carts for moving the other items with the tabernacle, but the ark itself was to be carried by hand on poles that were provided with it. Verse 7, uh, telling them to hitch it to some reluctant cows, though that's not forbidden in Scripture, it is not even mentioned in Scripture, yet it clearly did not communicate a respect for the Lord or for his presence that was associated with the ark. All of this uh, was tied to pagan ritual. Uh, they were not submitting themselves to God. See this clearly, understand this clearly. They were not seeking 
to be submitted to God. They weren't worshiping God. They were doing what they'd always done. They were seeking to manipulate God. Send him some gold. Bribe him to forgive us for taking his box. Oh, make the gold into images of tumors and of mice. Uh, apparently, mice were a part of the issue, which is uh, why many today think that they might have been experiencing the bubonic plague. Uh, but these golden images uh, were being sent away from them, hoping to convince this God to send the actual mice and the actual tumors away from them as well. It's all sympathetic magic that they're leaning upon. Uh, they're hoping to, uh, to convince God to do what it is that they want God to do. And I want you to notice something here. I want you to notice that nowhere does it tell us that this scheme worked. Nowhere does it say that the Philistines were suddenly healed when the ark went away from them. And nowhere does it say that they were put into right relationship with the God of Israel by doing the things that they did. In fact, the next thing that we read about the Philistines, the next time the word Philistine uh, appears there in Scripture, it, very quickly, it, the next encounter they have with Israel where they are soundly defeated and pushed out of that region. Understand this. The things that they were doing here were not things that caused their relationship with God to be set right. All that they were doing was seeking to move God out of their realm, to push him out of their world. They were not redeemed by what they did. And God's judgment was not satisfied by the actions they took. Rather, all they accomplished was delaying the judgment of God that would eventually come upon them. The closest that the Philistines get to having anything in the way of a right thought about this is found in the middle of verse 5. There the pagan priests tell the people that they need to give glory to Israel's God. And they do. They need to give glory to God. But sadly, their only goal in giving glory to God was that they were hoping that by doing that, God would stop oppressing them, their gods, and their land. In other words, their whole goal was just to get God to leave them alone. Their whole hope was just to get God to leave them alone. But understand this. Understand this. This is true then, and it's true, true now. That isn't what God wants. God doesn't want to leave you alone. Uh, God created us. Understand this. God created you to be in relationship with him. You and I, we are a part of that which Colossians 1.16 says was created through him and for him. We were created by God and understand this, we were created for God. We were created to be in relationship with God. But being in relationship with God is a complicated thing. And here's why. God is holy. I don't mean he's just better than us. I mean he is absolutely perfect. And so for you or I to, to be able to be in relationship with God because he is perfectly holy, we too would need to be perfectly holy. But we're not, are we? In fact, Isaiah puts it this way. In Isaiah 59, 2, he says, your iniquities, that's just a, 
a big word for sin. Your sin separates you from your God. Our sin separates us from God. And being separated from God, that's, that's not an okay thing. Understand this. God is not only the source of all life, he is not only our creator and the sustainer of life, but even beyond that, as Jesus says, he is life. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Think about that. It's not that Jesus didn't understand grammar. He was saying something here in the way that he phrased this. He is not just a source of life. He is not just the source of life. He is the life. He is life. And that means this, that if we find ourselves separated from God, then we are separated from life. And to be separated from life is death. Understand this, that's why, that's why Jesus came. That's why he went to the cross, was to pay the penalty for our sin, to bear that separation in our place. Understand this, without Jesus, Without his forgiveness and his cleansing, you and I, we are cut off from God. We are cut off from, the, the, from life itself. And because of that, because that is the dynamic, God's highest value, his first priority is not our happiness. Uh, we kind of figure that out going through life, right? If God's highest value were, were your happiness, life would look a little different than it does, right? God's highest value isn't us being comfortable. God is not, you know, just spending his days trying to find ways to keep me comfortable. He isn't even all that concerned about me having a long or a prosperous life. Rather, God's highest priority is for me to come to a place where I am surrendered to Christ. Why? Is it some sort of power trip for him? No, it's because that is the only way for me to find redemption and, and forgiveness, for me to be sanctified, for my life to be purified so that I might be able to enter into relationship with him. God made me for relationship with him. And the only way for me to experience that is for me to come to a place of surrender, of worship of submission to Christ. And God wants that for me so that for all of eternity, I will be able to enjoy unbroken, unending, joyful, and absolutely, ultimately satisfying relationship with him. That is why God was willing to have his hand lie heavy upon the Philistines and to fill them with fear and to allow them to experience something as awful physically as they were experiencing. That is why God, when we refuse to listen to his whispers or even to his speaking, will at times shout into our lives in ways that we cannot ignore because there is something far greater than our momentary comfort at stake. 
His desire is that we would come to a place of worship, of willing submission to him, where we would put our trust and our hope in him, where we would experience redemption and forgiveness and sanctification, that our lives would be purified. The Philistines didn't get that. They didn't understand that. You look at verse 6, and they're talking about not hardening their hearts like the, the Egyptians. But as you read what they say, you, you know, all they're really talking about is, hey, you know, the Philistines got the Israelites out. And maybe that's what we, we just need to get this thing. Let's just, let's just get it out and get this God away from us. And so verse 10 tells us they followed their plan. They put the ark in the back of a cart where it wasn't supposed to be. They hitched it up to two milk cows that had never had a harness on before, didn't know what to do with a harness, didn't know what a road was. They pinned up their calves and then they sat back to see what would happen. You know, naturally, what would happen is the cows would just stand there until they got hungry for some grass and then they'd wander off and they'd probably struggle against each other not knowing how a harness works and they would just find themselves in some field where they would eat to their heart's content. Certainly they wouldn't wander far away from their calves. That's what would happen unless God were involved in all of this. What we see does happen, verse 12, is these cows went straight up the road. No struggling with each other, no fighting the harness, no looking for a field with good grazing, but they went straight up the road, by the way, uphill all the way to Beth Shemesh from where they were. And they stayed on one highway, not wandering off into fields, lowing as they went. Sure, they were, they were pining for their calves, but never straying to the left or to the right. And the Philistines followed along behind them, watching, knowing that something supernatural was going on. The sad thing is that was the only supernatural thing that went on. The ark returned to God, but the Philistines didn't turn to God. That's what God wanted in all of this. Understand that he didn't just want his box back. I think God could have done that. What he wanted was for the Philistines to come to a place of willing submission. But they did not pursue God they didn't seek to come to know him. Rather, they set their God back up on his feet and continued to seek to manipulate in order to get what it was that they wanted. You know what the Philistines did here? It's, it's not all that foreign, even in our day or in our age. God speaks to people gently all the time. And for some of us, he has to raise his voice. Some resist his whispers, calling them to himself. 
instead of turning to him, instead of seeking to know him, some people just seek to avoid having to deal with him. They try to send him back where he came from. They blindly cling to their idols like the Philistines did, to their philosophies of life, their theories about existence, their, their fantasy of their personal sovereignty. They refuse salvation, not because the evidence is lacking, because it isn't, but because they don't want to surrender control. They don't want to willingly submit themselves to God. If that's you, stop ignoring God's tug upon your heart. Respond to him. There's a beautiful thing here. In the book of James, James makes a promise to us that if we will draw near to God, if we will just simply turn to him, he will draw near to us. God doesn't look to you and think, well, I guess you can come in the back door if you have to come. He doesn't, he doesn't just put up with your presence. But like that, the story that Jesus tells of the prodigal son, uh, our God, like the father in that story, races out to meet us and wraps us in his arms. And Christian, don't, don't you, don't you mimic the Philistines in the way that you respond to God either. You know, often the Lord confronts us about stuff in our lives. He, he whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience. And if we still won't listen, yes, he will shout to us in our pain. Don't cling to anything that the Lord would have you surrender. Don't sacrifice intimacy in your walk with the Lord. Remember what, what Proverbs chapter 3 says to us. It says there, Do not despise the Lord's instruction, my son. Do not loathe his discipline. Don't hate it when God takes you to task on something, when he speaks to you on something. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Understand that. that God, God is working in your life. He is seeking to clear out the clutter. Why? Because he wants less stuff between you and him. He desires to prepare you to begin experiencing that intimate relationship with him that he created you for. Just as a father disciplines a son in whom he delights. And let's remember, too, what, what the writer of Hebrews says about this very passage in Proverbs. He says there, no discipline seems enjoyable at the time. Boy, isn't that true? It's not fun, is it? But, but, the writer of Hebrews says this, later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Two things here. Understand this. Yes, it's hard when God deals with us on some issue. 
But understand this, there is a good reward at the end. There is a good thing at the end. It is the peaceful fruit of righteousness. What do we mean peaceful fruit? Peace in that relationship between you and your shepherd, between you and your God. There is a worthwhile thing that you have to gain. But understand this as well, he says, that peaceful fruit of righteousness only comes to those who have been trained by it. It is entirely possible for us to experience the discipline of God without benefiting from it. With stiff neck and arched back, we can go full-on Philistine and just seek to escape the moment, just seek to escape the pressure, the discomfort, and rather than coming to that place of submission to the Lord, just find a cart and some cows and get this thing off. You know, get it out of my way. But rather, we want to be trained by these things. We want to let them shape us. But that's hard. And so the writer of Hebrews goes on and he says, therefore, strengthen your tired hands and your weakened knees and make straight paths for your feet that that which is lame may not be dislocated, but healed instead. You know, the, reader, the writer of Hebrews, he got how weak we are, how incapable we are of embracing this in our own strength. You know, there are times when God is dealing with us on things and we, you just feel like, yeah, tired hands, weakened knees, got that. Uh, lame, yeah, I'm pretty lame. My kids tell me I'm lame all the time. <laughs> uh, dislocated, not sure about that, but I'm sure it's coming. You know, we need to be strengthened to be able to submit ourselves to the Lord. And I can't think of a better way for us to seek to be strengthened than to come to the Lord, worshiping Him, and coming to the table to remember what it is that Christ did for us. You know, communion is it's such an interesting thing. In, in parts of the church, they make communion into this thing, which biblically, clearly, it is not. Um, they make it into a ritual. Uh, and yet, in much of the church as well, we make it much less than it is. Communion is a thing that Jesus gave to us and that he commanded us to participate in. Why? Well, he says, do it to remember. But there is also a strengthening element that we see in Scripture with communion. There is, there is a reality to the fact that it is when we come to the table and we remember what it is that our Savior has done for us that in a very real sense we meet with him in that moment. We meet with him there and it is there as we meet with the Lord that we are strengthened and we are encouraged that we might go out and engage in the battle or more importantly that we might look within and surrender ourselves more fully to the Lord. So what is communion? Well, right before Jesus went to the cross, 
he shared the Passover dinner with his disciples. And the Passover dinner was full of symbols and of meaning. And in the midst of sharing that dinner together, Jesus took two of the things that had meaning assigned to them, and he gave a new meaning for those things. And he told his disciples, I want you to remember this. And I want you to do this. I want you to, when you gather together, do this in remembrance of me. Here's what he was talking about. He says that during dinner that he took bread and he gave it to his disciples. And he told them, I want you to take this. I want you to eat it. This bread is my body given for you. Jesus is saying, I'm going to become a sacrifice. My body is going to be sacrificed in order to pay the penalty for your sin, in order to redeem you out of your rebellion, to purify you, to cleanse you, and to draw you to myself. He, he says much the same a little later in dinner when it comes to the one of the four cups of wine that they shared during the Passover. He took what was called the cup of redemption, referring to God redeeming his people Israel out of Egypt. And he assigned a new value to that too. And he said this, he said this, this cup, it's the promise of my blood. What do you mean by that? Well, his, his blood, his life being poured out, his life being expended in order to pay the debt for my sin and for yours. He wanted us to remember that he died in our place. Why? So that we might come into intimate relationship with God who is holy and pure. God whom we cannot approach without the cleansing that was purchased for us by Christ upon the cross. And so, as we come back to worship, and I'll invite the guys to come back up, and as we turn to a time of, of worship, I'm going to invite you to come to the table on your own. Each set of cups there, one cup nested inside another. The bottom cup has a little nugget of bread. The top cup, just a taste of juice. And if you belong to Jesus, and this is for you, and you can come as we worship and take one of the cups, return to your seat, and you and Jesus, between the two of you, you remember what it is that he has done for you. And you can thank him. You can surrender yourself to him fresh. And you can be strengthened by his presence with you. You can be strengthened in order to surrender even more. Let's pray and let's worship. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your word, for your faithfulness, your goodness, for your willingness to die in our place. God, I thank you that you don't give up easily. God, when we ignore you, you just continue to speak to us. God, even raising your voice when you need to. Because, because you have good for us. You want to rescue us out of our foolish futility. You want us to be able to experience real relationship with you. And that can only happen because of the cross. So we thank you for that, Lord. 
Allow us to be aware of your presence here with us in the midst of this time. We worship you and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.